All right. You know the rules. As long or as little, as few or as many questions as you want. This is now your show with me being your guest. I, I'm ready for the questions. Awesome. Uh, my first question is why you didn't ask me certain questions. Uh, 12-week year. I mentioned it beforehand about productivity because this is a productivity podcast. Um, what are your thoughts on it and why didn't you ask me about it? What, were you were you purposely skirting around productivity or was it something <laughs> you forgot like I did until the end actually? So as, I, as I've mentioned before, I think that there is a lot of focus on systems and methods. And I mean, I'm a bullet journalist. So like, I've tried every single productivity app there is on the Mac on iOS. I have tried GTD. I've tried Kanban. I've tried, you know, building my own like life agile system. And 12 week year has been something that I've looked at as well. I have just learned that there are so many people that the second that you throw a term out, you have some people that want to embrace it and then you have other people that immediately want to like disconnect. So for me, like I don't, I, I try to never mention apps. I try to never mention systems because I know that there's value in the conversations that are being had. And I don't want to give anybody a reason to be like, Oh no, if he's talking about 12 week year, I've, I know all there is to know about it. I'm never going to talk about it. Uh, you know, or I'm never going to listen to anybody that talks about it. I, I just, I've, I've just learned over time it's easier to just get the message out without throwing a name on it. But in terms of the idea of the 12-week year, it's something that I've, I've had an eye on. It's something that I've looked at. Kind of hard for me uh, just because of the sheer amount of stuff that I'm doing. Right. I, I think part of me has wanted to do kind of like a cycled version of that where it's like, the podcast is like a 12-week year and then like live streaming would be like a 12-week year but starts at a different time. And then basically I have like a month of not doing a thing that keeps rotating. So like one month I'm not streaming, one month I'm not doing the podcast, one month I'm not doing, you know, business consultations or something. Um, but I've never really been able to sit down long enough to actually think about what that would look like. But right. I, I, I am interested in how people that actually like have a business, because for me, the business is always like, always be looking for new customers, always be like trying to make sure your existing clientele are happy. Like I don't ever take time off. And I know that that is part of some of the health and mental health concerns that I've had over the last few years, but I've never really been able to set up a time to where that makes sense, except for in the podcast. In the podcast, I've found ways to kind of sneak in a month or two off. Yeah, yeah. Well, I feel like 12-week year, because my business and the stuff I'm doing kind of in the community overlap so much, you know, I'm, I'm kind of fortunate in that way. The thing I'm doing during the week is also the thing I'd, I'd be doing kind of like the podcasting sort of almost for fun kind of thing. Um, it, it probably makes more sense for me. I do also hear your criticism though, that, uh, and this was something I was confused about early on with how I was going to use a 12 week year. I have so many plates spinning. How do I fit them into at most three goals? They say, don't do more than three goals. How do I do at most three goals in a 12 week period? That's that's, doesn't make any sense. And then I realized 
for me, it was about momentum and um, change. If I was going to change something and I was doing it deliberately, I shouldn't be deliberately changing more than three things at any one time in a big way. And so if I'm coming up with the new Python morsels exercise every week, that's not in my 12-week year. I do it, and I have to carve out time for it, but th my 12-week year is the rest of the week. It's that little portion where I'm doing the new thing, and the new thing has to be done deliberately, whether it's um, purposely making these new features on the web app that I've had in my mind, but wrapping around ex you know, exactly how I do it is hard, or starting to do screencasting, having to research the tools for that, and then finally doing it and getting into the habit of it, or getting into the habit of meditating every day or going to sleep at a certain time. And so once I've got that habit, it's no longer part of the 12 week year. You know, I've, I've, I started doing that thing. Maybe I stop it at a certain point. A lot of times I do, but if it's a habit-based thing, it's the starting of it that matters, the momentum, and then it's not in there anymore. And so I use it as an excuse for me to say, you know, someone asks, can you do this? And I go, well, is this an ongoing commitment? If it is, this isn't going to work out because it's not in my 12-week year. <laughs> ask me, and you know, ask me in a few weeks when I'm starting my next 12-week year, I can decide whether to do it. Also, an ex is an excuse for me to say, when I have a new idea, oh, I should really do that. I don't want to go chase after it. You know, we were talking about like chasing after new shiny things, and instead, what I can do is write it down as an idea for a future 12-week year cycle, where in like six months, maybe. I might start my next 12-week year with finally saying, okay, I'm going to start screencasting. It's been on my 12-week year ideas list for like a year and a half. I'm going to do it. And so that that's what it's about for me. But it's that's not the only system for that. That's just how I ended up finally deciding, oh, that's what I need a system for, is the changing of momentum. That That is a lot uh, uh, similar to like my migration pattern and like bullet journaling where, you know, every month you literally have to go through the previous month and anything that you've thought about doing or that you want to do or that you were supposed to do that you didn't do, you then have the the arduous task of migrating it to the next page. So you're literally writing stuff again and again and again. And I often use that as a reason to not pursue things and just say like, okay, if I really want to do this again, I either need to make room for it or I need to just accept that I'm not going to do it right now. And if it is something that comes back up, then I know that it's probably a better time to, to look into it that way. I think the only other thing that really keeps me from wanting to do something similar to like a 12 week year. And, and granted, like I said, I've, I've never put myself in like a idea of I'm just going to work on this one thing for 12 weeks or, or work on this one like concept for, you know, the next 12 weeks. A lot of it is the projects that I'm working on. You know, we talked about this before too. Like a lot of the code that we write, a lot of the code that we publish and stuff, no one else in the world is using. And for me, like building out render engine, for example, I'm using it on a daily basis. Like I have a stable version that I'm using like in professional work. And it's like, this is a thing that I need to, I need to be like, maintaining because it's important but at the same time like i don't necessarily have like a feature list I, I, it's like i want to build this thing i'm gonna start building this thing and i'll be done with it when i either a decide it's not worth building or b i finish building it but i do see where there could be value in like for instance right now i just finished um two new features that i've been wanting to well 
three new features that I've been wanting to work on. Um, kind of the idea of sub collections, the idea of uh, pagination, and then kind of this idea of building like a static search functionality off of the back of fuse.js. And after that, I was like, wow, I did a lot in the last quarter in those three features, but I've neglected like my documentation and my testing like desperately. So no more new features until you've got like all the other stuff documented and figured out. And like, I'm having to tell myself that, but it's also giving me time to go in and refine those existing features. Cause you know, at the end of the day, there are some people that love writing tests. I understand the value of testing. I am not against testing. I am still guilty of not wanting to always write a test. So there are often times when I'm writing a test where I'm like, I need to be able to make testing this a lot easier. So I'm going to refactor this code again, something I probably should not be doing because of whatever reason. And I always feel like I'm having fun doing this. And for some people that's weird, but for me, it's like, I don't want to put a a limit on this fun. I want to work on it. And then when I'm done working on it, I want to set it down, pick something else up, work on that, and then kind of do that. And again, right now I'm doing a lot of work for me. So it's, I have the, the luxury of being able to do that, but I could definitely understand, you know, right now I'm, I'm applying for developer advocate roles. I could say for the next 12 months, I want to focus on being a really solid streamer and focusing in these particular areas of the stack that I have to present. And I think that that's where I could find a lot of value. I just haven't had a need for that in my personal experience for to do that yet. Right. I would argue if you're using, regardless of whether you're using the 12 week year, rather, um, 12 months is, I, I'm now sold on this idea that it's way too long of a time to commit to anything unless it's pretty well vetted and tested by you already. So the, the thing I like about the 12-week year is it's a 12-week, well, I guess technically 13-week time span. I, I got to the last chapter of the book and I'm like, oh, by the way, there's a week 13 we never talked about. Um, <laughs> that's and so that's it's, called it's, marketing. They're like, that's, hey, yeah, we exactly. can't market this 13-week year. That's not, no, that doesn't work. No, no one wants the 13-week year. Let's let's talk about it as a bonus week at the end. And so it also it doesn't, it makes the year actually line up because there's, you know, you divide 52 by four, you get 13. You don't get 12. So <laughs> you, you can get four of them in a year. Anyway, the like, I love that it's just a quarter because three months time, it can go by really quickly sometimes. And like, if I get if I actually start screencasting this time, I make one screencast every week that's two minutes long. I've done quite a bit by the end of it. I, you know, I've only made maybe 10 screencasts if the first couple of weeks were like setting up my equipment. But then the next 12 week year, I can decide, okay, I now know how long it takes me to make one on average. How many am I going to do now? Do I want to try to go, you know, double down on this idea? And so, Whereas if I said over a year's time, I'm going to make screencasts, that's a really long time for me to consider, do I even want to do it? Because I'm kind of going in blind. And how many can I realistically do? Because I really don't know. So I, I really like chunking time down as short as you can. And I mean, maybe you could even go shorter than like a week or a day or whatever. <laughs> like, actually, I want to ask you, do you use Pomodoros? And if not, how do you chunk your time? Uh, yeah, that's, that's actually a really good question. I, I have used Pomodoro's in the past. Uh-huh. 
20 minutes is not enough time for me. Uh, okay. Keep, but how, how do you estimate if you're looking at a week, you've got these 50 tasks, you go, I can do these in this week. How do you estimate that? I often, I, I, I kind of follow like a do the one thing kind of approach where I go, okay. there, there are some things that I have that are just kind of recurring. Like I have this podcast, I am not in control of the schedule at all, other than I send people a link and they choose the time that's best for them. That's probably madness, and I should do something about that. We should talk about changing that later. (laughs) Exactly. But, um, you know, so there are things that are going to come up, and there are also, like, regular commitments, you know, doing the Talk Python newsletter, getting transcriptions, getting YouTube videos out. Those are all things that I do, and I just kind of have gauged over time. Like I know the newsletter takes like 20 minutes to do. I just have to find 20 minutes of my time to do it and then sit down and then actually do it. And then, you know, same thing with like getting a YouTube video out. Like I can literally start that process and let it run overnight because it doesn't involve me doing anything until the MP3 becomes an MP4. And then I put it up on YouTube. The, the stuff that I'm actively working on, I try not to actively work on more than one thing. And I would put that in terms of like an overall project. Uh, Of course, you know, no one is ever really able to just commit to doing one thing. There's always stuff that pops up. And, And I think that that's actually one of the things that I would say is a downfall for me is like there are often people like, well, are you going to be able to to balance a bunch of different tasks? And it's like, here's what I can do. I can focus on one and then I can trust the system on all of the other things. So if someone says like, oh, hey, I need you to, you know, do some weird, some transcription thing for me. Like, sure, that's fine. I trust my system so I can literally run a script and let it do the thing for me. I don't necessarily have to add that to a level of, of, you know, committing to it. It's just like, Hey, where's the file? Here's the thing. Okay, cool. Let me run the script. All right, I'm going to go back to doing what I was focusing on. And then in that aspect, I try to only give like my sole focus to one thing. And I don't chunk it as a 20 minutes, take a break, 20 minutes, take a break. It's like, focus on this until you're ready to smash your head into the wall and then get up and walk away. And then when you feel like being able to focus on it again, then sit back down and start focusing on it again. It's funny because I feel that but I also, while I sometimes, you know, the 25 minute thing comes up, I hit the break button. I stay at my computer for those five <laughs> minutes and then I, I hit the, the start button again and then I do another 25 minutes. I try to avoid doing that most of the time because I do find that when I walk away from my computer during that five minutes, I use an excuse to like get more tea, go to the bathroom, like, mm-hmm. you know, wave at whoever else is in, you know, my home with me now or you know, look out the window and kind of space out for a minute or two, like that ends up breaking up something where I'm now kind of leaving a moment for just daydreaming for just a minute or two. And then I go back to the thing and I have to go, okay, where did I leave off? But it gets me out of the zone enough to, to then question, is this the thing I should be doing now? And what does it feel like going back into it? And then like that, that little bit of getting the momentum back up again, I feel like is worth it for that break, for the fact that I'm, I'm punctuating my work. So I kind of, I realize that this, this might be more relevant for me because you only have so many hours, you know, after work and such that you're cramming all your things into, which is amazing to me. You're getting so much <laughs> done in that, you know, the, the time that you have, 
Um, but I do feel like for a whole day, that's really essential for me. I do also want to push back, though, on something you said, which is that you should only be doing one thing at a time. Now, I haven't read the book, what is it, The One Thing. And so I might change my mind after I read it. But, um, <laughs> Tim Harford, who is the host of the Cautionary Tales podcast, he's an economist. Um, I actually didn't know he's an economist when I, I just love his podcast, but um, he talks about slow motion multitasking, which uh, I think might have also sort of been talked about in deep work in a different, there was a different term that was used, which is having multiple plates spinning at once so that when you're, when you're working on something, you go, I'm kind of stuck on this thing. You can then switch to something else kind of like you're going to sleep almost where this thing isn't in your mind anymore. And then when you transition back to it, your mind's almost been working in the background a little bit, thinking about this other problem and having two or three things you can switch between that are your main things, I think is a really good thing in general. Now you might already be getting that from the fact that you've got work and your personal thing and, and whatever else. But I, I do think slow motion multitasking is probably a really good idea. I think with that, though, there there's a level of variance that comes in. Like I, I pull up, I use an app on the Mac called Timing that logs where my active window is, like what my uh -huh. active window is throughout the day. And like in the last week, I didn't even realize this. Like I saw the data and I was like, oh, God, what's wrong with me? <laughs> 22 hours in the terminal. And like, I know exactly where those 22 hours are coming from. But like, when you think like, wow, I literally spent almost an entire day in the last week working on side projects where I could have right. been sleeping, where I could have been doing so many other things. I'm often bouncing and kind of operating in different areas. Like I might be working on you know render engine while i'm live streaming and that's hitting like two wave points and that in that there are going to be times where it's like i'm more focused on the live streaming component or i'm more focused on the actual coding component and you know the same is true like anytime i'm doing like marketing stuff it's if i know that i need to jump in and do a thing really quick like that's often where i am taking breaks like you said i we all we all hit bumps and we all get to a point where it's like, I need to, I need to kind of get up and like, let it, you know, let stuff flow. And, and I do that, but I often do it in ways that I'm not realizing that I'm doing it. Like probably the worst habit that most of us have is like, Oh, I'm, you know, I've been writing a ton of code. I wonder what's going on on Twitter right now. Oh, what's on fire. Okay. Let's just, We'll, we'll set that aside and go back to it. But then like, that's, that's where my breaks come in. So it, they're not scheduled, but they, they feel natural. Like when, when I have, you know, had two hours and 43 minutes inside of a Slack window, like that is actively writing, sharing code, having conversations. Like we often think about like, okay, what does that look like on a regular basis? That's probably only a few minutes a day, but it's a few minutes at the appropriate time or at like the exact needed time where you can really start to decompress or like, hey, I'm having a problem with something. Let me see, you know, what's going on in the rest of the world. Let me go watch some YouTube videos. And during that time, maybe a solution will come to me. Maybe it won't. Right, right. 
Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that, that, you know, when you've got that time where you're doing something else that like, I mean, that's the reason people talk about taking a shower or going for a walk or, you know, stepping away being important. Um, switching gears a little bit. I want to ask you uh, complete. I don't even know how I thought of this question. Uh, what do you think of the minimalism movement? Not a, well, <laughs> somewhat of a fan, not a fan of the obsession. I think not that, a fan of the obsession. Somewhat of it. So, are you? You wouldn't call yourself a minimalist, I'm assuming. Then, by but no are means. you in actuality a minimalist? Are you pseudo minimalistic? I would say there are areas I can notice when there's clutter in my life. Like right now, my okay. desk is a, a hot mess, and I don't even want to talk about that. But like, I can tell. Like as someone who is almost by some people known for I do a lot of things. Mm -hmm. I think that you can't do a lot and have a lot at the same time because uh, just stuff will get dropped. And mm -hmm. when I start noticing more and more things slipping through the cracks, that's when I know it's like, I need to start dialing it back. I need uh, the reason why stuff is falling through the cracks is because there's too much stuff going on. And I am one in terms of like, personal stuff i tend to not want to own a lot of things but not necessarily for the sake of minimalism it's often for the sake of maintenance like brand new brand new coffee water kettle like yep. i've been wanting a gooseneck kettle for the longest time and it was like i can't justify buying another water kettle i have one it works it's perfectly fine yep that was a gift. So I was like, sweet, you know? Yeah. And then at the same time, it's like, now I have a water kettle at my desk and one in the kitchen because honestly, the, the other one is a regular water kettle and it's great for like oatmeal and like ramen and things like that, where this is just perfect for coffee. Right. And I think that what we do when we're, when people say, oh, well, I subscribe to the minimalist movement. It's like, okay, that's cool. But there are so many things that, if you are a minimalist, you're not going to give yourself the opportunity to do, or you're going to make the choice of giving something up because of holding on to an idea of something of like, I, I have to be minimalist. So I can't have more than one computer. I can't have, you know, seven pairs of shoes. If you like shoes, I only have two pairs of shoes. Well, three pairs of shoes now, because someone got me some shoes and I was just like, I don't, I'm not a big shoe person. That's just not me. Like, all of my shirts are from conferences or from like bands. Like I, I don't, I don't go out hunting things, but at the same time, I'm not going to sit there and stress over what I do have. I would now call you a minimalist. <laughs> so you wouldn't call yourself that. Finding out you have two pairs of shoes. I'm going, okay, I get, I now know the maximal minimalist here. It's Jay Miller. But I mean, um, those shoes, I, I have very specific cases for those shoes. I have like, I think it's three shoes. I have. You're digging yourself deep. <laughs> I have shoes that I wear to work, which are like these Adidas casual tennis shoes that have like are still in the box. I have like my I'm I need to go somewhere. Let me just put on some shoes. And those are like there's like slip on vans. And then I have yard work shoes that are also my running shoes that I use. Like if I'm going on a walk or if I'm mowing the yard or something, like I don't mind if they get messed up or they get dirty. Like, so it's at the same time, like I don't like shopping 
but it's not because I don't want things. It's just because I don't like the act of shopping. I don't like going to shoe stores and going, that looks nice. Let me try that on and making all these decisions. I'm just like, no, the shoes that I have are perfectly fine. Like I can just wear those for longer. Right. You also <laughs> said though that you don't like the maintenance. And I feel like that's a thing that I, that, like, that's one of the reasons I'm drawn to I, I agree with you that I'm I'm not I wouldn't call myself minimalist, but I'm drawn to the the concept of minimalism as sort of as a movement. That there's a lot of people who are like around that space that wouldn't necessarily call themselves that. I you know I also kind of like, and I don't want to necessarily strongly identify with any part of it. But um, I agree with you that the you know having a gooseneck kettle at your desk, having a kettle in the kitchen, they have different purposes, different places. And it's, it's more maintenance, but I feel like that's another side of minimalism, which is you could have had one all-in-one kettle that does everything all the time, but usually those types of products aren't very good. They do mm-hmm. all the things in a mediocre way. Um, in fact, some people would call Python that. It's the second best programming language at everything, <laughs> but I would say that is one of its strengths, and also it is very good at some things. Uh, but that, you know, the, the gooseneck kettle used for one thing, the kettle in the kitchen used for another I feel like that's almost a style of minimalism where you're saying, I'm going to get the thing that I need that does that thing. And then if I had another one and it doesn't have a use, I'm going to get rid of that thing. But if it Mm -hmm. has a use still and its use is different, then I should have two things. And, you know, like you're, you're, you know, I have two pairs of shoes, not one pair of shoes. (laughs) There's two pairs of shoes that have different use cases. Whereas my 12 pairs of shoes, or I don't even, I just made that up. I probably even have more than that. They, you know, there's a lot of overlap in there. And so I'm, I'm too attached to having a slightly different shoe. That's my everyday walking shoe today than yesterday for some strange reason. You know, I realized that the thing that made me think of this, you said bullet journal and the fact that you, um, you know, you cross something off if you haven't, if, if it's just the case where you don't think you're ever going to realistically do this because you don't want to keep writing it over and over, that scares me. I, so I'm, I like being a digital minimalist. However, I will always have an archived thing, whether it's in Workflow, which I use for like organizing my whole life for pretty much the last, I think, nine years I've been a paying customer, or whether it's Google Drive. There's always a place that I drag things where it's look at one day or archived because I don't want to get rid of it I want to be able to see it, but I don't want it in my face. I want to hide it somewhere. And since bits are cheap, I'm fine hiding it there. And then like every once in a while, every six months or year or so, I have a reminder to go look in there and scroll around and go, oh, it's interesting that's in there. Every once in a while, I move something out. It's rare, but I do like that it's in there. Even if it's like I took a picture of something, it's no longer relevant. I'm still keeping that photo. Oh, that would that would bother me. <laughs> but it's in the archives. I don't get to see it in in you know that's, the domain place where everything else is. That's true, and and I mean I use Devin Think in a similar way of like, you know, with my business, one of the things that I've wanted to start doing is having because I'm, I'm constantly referring to like a conversation that I had some time ago with some person, and it's like I need to save that somewhere. Now in my notebooks and stuff like that's how I know I'm not a minimalist. Cause like, here's my active notebook. Um, somewhere in this house are 27 other notebooks that I've had over the last three years. <laughs> yeah, but that's I'm that way with my shoes. You're that way with your notebooks. We all get yeah. to have our, our little weirdness, but you know, you we're aspiring in the places where we don't have that problem. Right. Because you want to allow your notebook mess to get out of hand 
Well, you don't necessarily want to allow it to get out of hand. No. It's going to get out of hand. <laughs> and so you don't want your shoes to get out of hand as well because you're already dealing with the notebooks. Yeah. Well, and that's like, you know, I have three pens, three, three very <laughs> fancy pens. One, yep. Fountain pen, cross platinum oh, pen. That is like, fancy. that was a gift from the company that I work for. And basically they gave me the cheaper version. I converted <laughs> it into the expensive version. So like, to me, that's like, hey, my name is on it. I've never had a pen with my name on it. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Then I have like my really nice fountain pen, like the most expensive fountain pen I've ever owned. And that's my daily writer that never leaves this desk. <laughs> and like, it stays in my notebook. It stays on my desk. I know exactly where it is at all times. And then I have my daily driver, which is a magnetic, huh. <laughs> like super slick pen that does like, this was a custom made pen. Like I know the, the, one of the manufacturers for it. I know the guy that runs the shop and basically we took a bunch of, of the defected models, which basically the defect, the defects on it were like, there's like a scratch on it. So he can't sell it or like the coloration on it was off by a little. And basically I just made my own pens and I made one for my wife, which is hold on one second. Hers is the Joker edition, which is green and green and purple. And like they literally liked this design so much they started selling it. So I can say she has like the version the one. Yeah. yeah. So I think that, like you said, there there is a thing about wanting to have certain things in life, but I think that everything should have a purpose. Like mm-hmm. My pens are very different. One is my regular writer, my cross pen that I have, I use for like signing important documents. And then this is like what I write my name on, on a receipt at the gas station. Like it's my get beat up everywhere pen. And like, I love my coffee cups, but all my coffee cups have like something in in mind with them. I have a Chemex coffee maker and an AeroPress. Like I, I know the difference in what things are going to taste like coming from each one. I get all of my coffee from like a subscription service where I pick out the beans. They're usually single origin and like all of that stuff I can only think about because I'm not obsessed with some of the other things out there. So it's like, to me, that's where I like the idea of minimalism is that by saying stuff that isn't important, you don't necessarily need to keep a ton of because that's going to leave space for the things that are important to you. So, you know, if shoes are your thing, that's fine to have, you know, a thousand pair of shoes, as long as you can explain to yourself why you want that many shoes to me shoes aren't that important so it's like i don't want to have to sit there and be like what shoes am i going to wear today so i just go you know what one pair of nice shoes one pair of mediumly nice shoes and then one pair of shoes that i can wear around the house and as long as everything that i buy clothes wise matches one of those pairs of shoes i'm okay that's so much less thought that i have to give it yeah well and i'm you know, I'm that way with a lot of my other things, like my T-shirts. Anything that's not a tech shirt is a plain color T-shirt that I get from the same brand, the same place, <laughs> the same, just because, and it's not always the same color. You know, I've got a, a variety of little colors, but some of them I've got duplicates of a couple of colors. And that just keeps it simple that this shirt, 
If it's the same exact color as these pants, it's going to look like a very strange pantsuit. So don't do that, but like grab a different <laughs> pair of pants. And then I've, I've got my, my clothes. It's just that the shoes, I don't get rid of the old ones. You know, I, this shoe has some history. It's not, it's still, it still doesn't have holes in it. I keep it around. Then the problem is I get another one because that one's looking pretty raggedy because I want a slightly nice pair. And now I've got all these raggedy shoes that are great for just kind of casually, you know, walking outside. But if I'm going to go see a client or if I'm going to go to maybe a conference <laughs> or something where I, I don't want the one pair of shoes that I bring to be a raggedy looking pair of shoes, then I have this, you know, shoe problem going on. Well, that that's why my work shoes stay in the box because it's like I take them out. When I, if I'm going to talk at a conference, yeah, I would take those shoes that way. And then as soon as I get home, I'm like, okay, it's time to put these back in the box. Um, right. But I, so I, I do think some some of this difference comes from the fact that like, you know, talking to people who have uh, families, partners, children who use your thing when things are more communal it's really hard to have that one thing sometimes because someone might break it. Someone might misuse it or treat it differently. Or someone like, for example, being in a house where, you know, there's little kids here. um, Those children think of pens differently than I do. And so I have a couple pens that are in my desk. Currently they're in my desk and they don't think of my desk as a place where they pull something out of anything that's common area that pen may be gone in like the next day and never come back. Who knows where yeah. it's going to go. And definitely. And I, I think that that's where, I mean, like you said, you know, my little one is now at the age where everything belongs to her, right. <laughs> you know, in her opinion. Mine. So it's like, Oh, I have to now like not treat things as sacred, but make sure that if I don't want something to go missing, I better make sure that I, you know, give it a little higher position in my area because otherwise it will go missing. Right. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I think it only gets worse as they get older because, you know, there's more, (laughs) they end up using the thing more and it has more value. They want the thing that's special. They don't, you know, because there's a, there's something special that comes from like, oh, that's your thing, but I want to use your thing sometimes because it has some kind of power there. And then like, you know, what happens when your thing is now misplaced because they left it somewhere and you can't find it. And I don't know. That's, it'd be an interesting conversation to rehab. So you heard it here first. Jay Miller, minimalist in denial. <laughs> maybe, maybe fine. Trey Hunter, also minimalist in denial. We can say we're, we're both minimalists, but not by title. Yeah. And, and you know, that, that kind of goes a lot. That goes a lot back into like the first question you had with like, putting a label on something i i again i am the kind of person that the second that you throw a label on it like if people ask me what my process is like Mm -hmm. to say bullet journaling like sure i read the book i eventually i just kind of adopted so many of the things that that writer carol does in the book so it's like yeah i could say i'm a bullet journalist i mean do i do everything perfectly no but that's fine nobody does but the the idea for so long, like so many people were like, oh yeah, you should look at GTD. And I was like, why? Like, it's like, yeah, I can have an inbox. Yeah. I can have like a review time on things. And they're like, well, that's the main component of GTD. Why don't you just say that you follow GTD? It's like, because I don't, it's like, I don't, I don't have a, you know, I forget what it's called, like a dump file or whatever, or a tickler file and all that stuff. Like, that's just not, that sounds so anxiety laden for me is like, if I want to do a thing, I'll write it down 
And if at the end of the month I haven't done that thing, then I have to examine whether or not I want to do it. I think there's a Mitch Hedberg joke that I think about when I say that. It's like, you know, my job as a comedian is to to think of stuff that's funny and then I grab a, a pen and a pad and write it down. And if I can't find a pen or a pad around me, I just have to convince myself that what I just thought of was not that funny. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that's how I feel at times. Like The success to my productivity, quote unquote, is the determination of like, I see, I see a thing that I want to do. It becomes the most important thing in, you know, the space for me. So I can't stop thinking about it. I'm going to do that thing. And then when it becomes no longer important, I set it down and pick up whatever the next thing is and start working on that. And I've just been lucky enough that I've had the ability for other little things to pop up from time to time. And I go, yeah, sure. Let me fix that thing as fast as possible so I can focus on the thing that I'm actually interested in doing again. Right. I So I agree with the sentiment entirely and that I really don't like labels and being labeled. And I've wanted like, I feel like since as long as I can remember, I wanted to push back against the idea of, you know, if someone asked me about my politics or something, I'd say, well, I don't, I don't like labels. You know, <laughs> like I have these ideas, but they're completely against, you know, this party or whatever that has these other ideas. And so like none of these groups seem to have even the foundation that I want to build up from and figuring out what's the way we should interact in the world with, with people. And if I suddenly change what I think in a very fundamental way about this thing over here, then I can't be that label anymore. And then a year later, I'm not allowed to be that label. So it's weird, but I do feel like there's a, a solution to that that I actually kind of think is important, which is using something that's ish or esque or inspired by because you know tdd like i I mentioned i used the phrase earlier um test inspired development i i use that phrase because i was afraid of tdd because i don't do test driven development i don't do test first development i i do write the tests sometimes before the code sometimes during the code sometimes after the code i don't really care when they're written Mm -hmm. i do want them to inspire the code and vice versa and it's the same with um the you know 12 week year i do not score myself after that week i add up some little score you're supposed to do and then look at it and then evaluate it and go okay how did i do and then act on that that's like one of the most fundamental parts of the 12 week year and i don't do it and i'm fine with that and maybe i'll do it one day or maybe i just never will but i use my version of the 12 week year it's inspired by the 12 week year and i feel like something that i said and i think my last three screencast recordings because it's, it's applicable in python all the time if something's important it deserves a name you know if you've got some object you're using some object you're passing around if if this bit of code needs a name write a function for it pop this bit out write a function make a variable for it you know don't use a hard-coded index sub zero sub one use tuple unpacking or something if something's if something's important it deserves a name i do feel like that applies almost everything in life where even if you make up the name, you make up the terminology or you say it's, you know, GTD-ish, GTD-esque, GTD-inspired or GTD-like or you you make up something else or you tell a story around it about why it's not GTD and what it's like instead and how, you know, this is the way you do it. You've still kind of anchored people's thoughts around the term, the story, the description as opposed to having to describe the whole thing every time. You know, shorthands are useful and I feel like that's the thing that you're 
you're leaving out when you don't have that name. So I, I don't know the solution to this, but I feel like if you can like come up with terminology for those things, it makes your ideas sticky in a way that they aren't otherwise. I, I think as much as that's important, I, I also would think about like the name of developer. Like I, I have, that's like one of my questions that I always ask my friends that have like seen me write code. And I mm-hmm. go, what would you label me as in the world of development? Would I be a full stack developer? Right. Would I be a backend engineer? Would I be a software engineer? Would, you know, would I be a senior engineer or a junior dev? I mean, what, what would you classify me as? And it's so funny because I, I see people go through these mental gymnastics of like, well, you podcast and you work with business stuff. So you're kind of an entrepreneur, but you also do development. So, and you do a lot of web stuff. So I'd call you a web developer, maybe a full stack developer, but you know, you don't really work in JavaScript all that much. So maybe you're just like a Python developer and you, your code quality is high enough to be senior, but you're, you lack the experience of professional development. So maybe you're mid level. I'm like, this is why I don't like putting labels on things. Why can't I just be a developer? Like right. at the end of the but day, I mean, you know, you can do like uh, the German language does and make up your own label by smashing <laughs> a bunch of others together, right? Like an entrepreneurial Python focused, full stack, uh, semi senior, semi junior developer. I don't even know. What, I don't know what things would go in there depending on the area. Cause like maybe front end your semi junior, maybe back end your semi senior or something, but yeah. the, whatever that is, you can smash those labels together the same. And that might even be stickier because then people go, oh, wow, this I've never heard this string of things together before. Let me talk to this person. As opposed to if you're unlabeled, you're not yet interesting until the person gets the chance to know you. And I feel like labels are a shorthand to say, if this sounds interesting to you, this is where to go. This is the thing to look into. Yeah. I So far when people ask me, they're like, what are you? I just tell them I'm a multi-potentialite and they're like, what does that mean? And it's like, <laughs> if it's something that interests me, then I'll, I'll dive deeper and deeper into it to the level of I'm interested in it. <clears throat> and then they're like, I still don't know what that means. And I go, okay, look at Donald Glover. He's a writer, a rapper, a movie producer, an actor, or sorry, a TV show producer. What would you call him? He's like, oh, he's like a Renaissance artist. Sure. I'm a Renaissance artist now. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> like, like I'd, whatever it is I want to do, I'm just going to do that thing. And I'm not going to worry too much about the label that's attached to it because I think with labels, the thing that I think about more and more is what what in a label tells you that you can't do a thing. Kind of like like what you said, you know, if you start looking in terms of politics, if you have business beliefs that are very conservative, but your social beliefs are extremely liberal, what does that make you? Some people would say that makes you a moderate. I personally wouldn't go that road, but it's like, why, why, why do I need to assign? Why do I need to tell people what team I'm on? Like, can I just create my own team? Like, I like, it's, it's just, it's my team. And if you want to be on my team, that's cool. But the one thing you have to be okay with is that my team is, is pretty wild. Like, we don't, we're, we're pretty liberal in, in all of our leanings. You can, you can do whatever you want and I'm not going to tell you not to. Right. Well, I, I do think that, um, I mean, it's a big problem because once you start sticking too many labels together, then people just turn off. I mean, yeah. 
I get, I get, and but you can cheat sometimes by either taking the approach of like making the kind of cop out solution that I feel like you've you've made there by saying you're a multi potentialite or saying maybe I'm the the Donald Glover of tech or something like that. <laughs> hey, <laughs> I like that. That's yeah, a good one. Jamie, like Donald Glover of, of, of well, I don't even not even Python tech. Donald Glover of the technology entrepreneurship. Yeah, you said it, um, not me. <laughs> yeah. Um, or you could take the other approach of not going general, where you kind of because there's the um. What's his name? The Amazon economist, I think he calls himself. There's there's other names where the title sticks out to me. Or um, uh, Kim Creighton has an uh, economist in her title that she made up for herself. Yeah. Looked, like a title that you, you give yourself. Um, that's something where I feel like that's one way to go. The other way to go is don't use a general title and instead use something that's specific where, you know, if it was political, for example, you could say, well, what are the things I really hold dear, the kind of core things, and then find the description of that, stick those three together. And then if they go, okay, well, but then what do you think about this other thing that's not one of those few things? Then you can explain. And so kind of like me, I'm not just a Python teacher, really. I mean, I do other stuff, but that's the thing I identify as because that's the thing I'm shaping people to see me as because that's I've chosen the more specific thing, um, which actually could even be more specific. I could say, you know, if I was a podcaster, a Python podcaster, or a Python online educator or something. But there's I could also go a little more general. And the more specific you can go, the more people suddenly identify and go, oh, that's the thing you're calling yourself today. And so that that has meaning to me. And granted, it can change and it, you know, that kind of thing. But I, I feel like that's there's a, a lot of value there that comes quickly as a conversation starter. You know, if it was in your Twitter bio, like Donald Glover of Tech or something like or something that just was really catchy there, even if it was super specific, like people are gonna like look at your profile and be like, oh that's interesting, and either follow or unfollow quickly based on that one thing. Versus if they see something generic, they go, I don't know what a multi-potentialite is. Like they have to scroll through your feed, they go, maybe I want to follow this person. It's there's more decision that, that goes on there. Yeah, I, I was just looking at like, okay, what does my actual uh, profile say? And I mean, it just says Python developer, podcaster, podcast producer, brand ambassador, and streamer. Like, to me, that's like, okay, some people will glob onto bits and pieces of that and whatever piece right. that they're excited about. Cool. Like, and, and I've, I've had to do that even... Uh, like after I spoke at um, North Bay this past year, like I sat down and had dinner with with um, Guido and a few others, and we're there talking. And he's like, "So what do you do?" And I was like, "Well, I explained it a little bit in my talk." And he goes, "Yeah, but no, that's just like what you're doing for fun, right?" And I'm like, "I mean." a lot of the things I do for money, I also do for fun. <laughs> like, right. I, like we don't, like I was trying to explain to him, like, yeah, I'm a marketer. Like I'm not a developer. I mean, I am a developer. Like I try to get out of the habit of saying I'm not a developer, but it's like, I don't get paid for the code that I write. I, pay, I get paid for the results that I bring to my clients and to my day job. And right. for me, that's like, by not calling myself a developer, I'm almost doing a disservice to myself. But yep. then if I tell people I'm a developer, their idea of what I do and how I could potentially help them immediately changes to where if I say I'm a podcast producer or I'm a, a digital content, you know, I've been playing around with this idea of like, what what is the word that I can tell someone who makes content what I do? And they can go, oh, this person can help me. So usually what I say is I'm a technical 
content marketer. And it's like, if you work in technical content, I can help you market it. <laughs> like that's, that tends to be the best result. Right. And that, well, that's something that like, it's interesting because when you make up a term, sometimes there's a downside of the term doesn't ring true with the people it needs to ring true with. And mm-hmm. I, I've done this a couple of times before where I made up a term that didn't seem to stick with the right audience. It stuck with the, <laughs> like a different, the wrong audience. Um, and I, I feel like with your profile here, you could say, for example, Python developer focusing on um, tooling for podcasters or something like, you know, something that's, it's technically true. You are broader than that. Like people can see the link to, you know, your podcast or whatever with, you know, you put prod and tech podcast or whatever. Um, but it's, you know, focusing on an angle and then saying like, Oh, and here's the other things as well kind of allows people to say, Oh, that's the angle that they're most identifying with at the moment. And I get it that like, if you're wearing three hats and you don't want to take any of them off, <laughs> there's no, <laughs> there's no way to like, to, to solve that problem. Um, Chief, Chief Haberdasher, Chief um, Mad Hatter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just have a picture of yourself in your profile with three hats on. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm changing it now to uh, Trey said I'm the Donald Glover of, of the Python world. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's going to that's gonna be my new, my new description for what I do. That I... I will. I think I'll stand by that. <laughs> I mean, I like Donald Glover. I don't know any reason not to like Donald Glover. Yeah. He seems cool. Jay's cool too. Why not? <laughs> well, you heard it here first, first, guys. I'm the uh, the Donald Glover of the Python industry. So uh, <laughs> one one day maybe I'll get paid like that too. That'd be nice. I hope so. You deserve oh, man. it, dude. This has been fun. Like any any other uh, questions stuff you got or um. I think if I have like a really hard or weird question to ask you, <laughs> well, what question have you expected someone would ask you at some point And like, nobody seems to have asked you. You're just surprised that like no one's asked this question. I think that there are always questions around <clears throat> the, the why I do a thing, I guess. Or like why I'm doing what I'm doing. That's that's always like the one question that people are like, you know, why did why podcasting, why streaming, why helping other podcasters? Um but I, I think that the the big question that people have haven't asked is like are you happy with where you're at in that right. journey? And I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that that's going to be your question. <laughs> yeah, you, you get the, you're going to get the scary question in a few seconds here. So you get to think yeah. about your answer to it. Yeah. Um, yeah well, because I'm, I'm glad that I didn't ask those questions that were apparently the obvious ones that everyone else <laughs> asked, which is I apparently don't care why you're doing what you're doing, which I don't know what that says about me. Um, well, but, I mean, you, you've known me as long as I've been doing all those things. So I think right. that I think at some point you've gotten all those answers just maybe in different forms. Yeah. Well, and I mean, we all have our like the thing that ends up being the next shiny thing that for whatever reason resonates with us. And it's not that I don't care about why it resonates, but it's kind of more interesting to me, like what that resonance sort of looks like. Like, uh, I mean, sometimes it is really curious to me, like, you're doing this. Why are you doing that? But I feel like, I don't know, maybe because I've known you for a while, you're right that the pieces seem like they fit together pretty, pretty cleanly. <laughs> I'm glad um, you think that. <laughs> 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 you 
Well, it, you know, it's always going to be messy. There's no, you know, they're never going to fit together that cleanly, but they fit together in a way that makes sense to me in the same way that, you know, if someone, if people saw a lot of my side projects that were abandoned, they'd be like, you know, why were you trying to make a platform to allow people to find Creative Commons licensed music when most of it isn't even very good? You know, what was the point of that? And why did you abandon it? And I don't, I don't have good answers for those things outside of it was just an interest. I mean, that's usually the why for me is yeah. it's just, you know, it's just an interest for whatever reason and because of some historical thing. So back to the hard question that we're not avoiding. Um, <laughs> are you satisfied with where you're at, what you're doing, your direction? Oh man. How do you feel about it? It's, you know, it's tough. And I'm going to I'm going to answer this the way that I've answered a few other questions and kind of blend them together and come to some weird conclusion I guess but I knew as soon as as soon as someone told me like hey did you know that you can get paid to write code and tell people about it like it's called being a developer advocate like you get to talk to people you get to learn a bunch of stuff they pay for you to go to conferences and like learn and share what you've learned like i'm like oh that sounds amazing like how do i sign up for that you know i was told that there were like all of these things that you had to do to get this golden ticket to the developer advocate club and i was just like yeah no i'm not going to do any of that because that sounds dumb and people are like well then you can't be a developer advocate and in my mind i was like i think you're wrong and now I kind of want to prove to you that I'm wrong. Not not to the point where like when I do it, I'm going to like write you an email and be like, ha, ah, I did it. It's just the if I see you at a conference and we're like, oh, hey, yeah, no, I, I, I made it. And I just want you to know I made it. Like, look at me. I'm here. Like I I did it and I did it the way that I wanted to. I think for me right now, I am at such a high level of uncertainty with what I want to do um, do I want to be a developer advocate for a company that's you know that pays me a bunch of money just to sing the praises about their product? Like, I mean, I could I could definitely be doing worse. <laughs> you know, is it what I want to be doing at the end of the day? I mean, probably not. I, I don't want to retire, you know, from that gig. Right. But do I want to run my own business? I mean, I like the idea, but. Being a business owner sucks. <laughs> like, like, yeah, I want to kind of. I want to work in a company and not be the person running it. <laughs> in a way, yeah. like, like I want to own the company, but also be an employee of it, and just pay someone else to do all of the. I run a business stuff, because like, in my mind, the stuff that I do for Mike, the stuff that I do for Jamie and some of my other clients, like the stuff that I'd love to do for you, you know, when, when the time is right, the, that stuff is fun for me. Like coming up with solutions to transcription problems. That's fun. Like transcriptor is in my opinion, I want that to be my, if, if I were getting a PhD in something, that would be like my doctorate project. Like, all of these services have their own way of making transcriptions work. I want to build the thing. I want to build the SQL alchemy of Python transcriptions or, or transcribing right. stuff in Python. Like to me, that sounds like a challenge that is <coughs> super difficult. 
but something I can do because I know the industry. I know that area. Same thing with like Render Engine. Render Engine was built because I wanted to add JSON, um, was it JSON feeds to Pelican? And I wanted it to be like my first actual pull request, like my own, my first open source contribution of like, hey, Pelican now supports native JSON feeds. And I couldn't figure out how to do it. I couldn't figure out how to make it work. <coughs> so I was like, my idea isn't bad. The system is flawed. So let me build a system that is easier to allow for these things. So in my mind, I'm doing these things already and I'm doing them because I wanted to do them and they seemed like a good challenge and they were fun. So in that area, I'm being properly challenged and I'm having a ton of fun while doing it. But <coughs> I'm, as you can hear by me coughing, I'm doing it at the cost of my health I'm doing it at the cost of my sanity at times. I'm not getting paid to do it. I mean, I work, I will, I will say I do the work of a developer advocate today without being paid to be a developer advocate. And I do it on my own free will. I do the work of being a marketer and I get paid to do that, but I don't get to practice being a marketer as much as I want to in the areas that matter to me. Instead, I'm having to like, do my use my marketing skills for like this industry that I care nothing about. And in my mind that hurts because skills are not enough. The the challenge is not enough to feel accepted by the industry. So for me, if someone said, "Hey Jay, can you teach somebody Python?" I, yeah, of course I could. Like I mean, Take them from never using Python to using F strings with equals at the end so that, you know, they can do some fancy stuff with it. And yeah. like, I could do that, but there feels like there's still so much gatekeeping involved that to get to where I have been today, it's been extremely stressful. It's been extremely harmful um, physically to my health and everything that I wonder if it was all worth it. And at the end of the day, if I get to where I wanted to go, if I get the job and I, you know, I get the the credit or whatever, then yeah, maybe it was worth it. But then if I die a month later, I'm sure there's going to be a bunch of people that are like, probably wasn't worth it, right? right? So I'm happy in that I'm having a ton of fun. I'm concerned because people are starting to see and see the work that I'm doing, but I hope that I'm not too late to enjoy the reward. I hope that like, I don't have to leave the industry because I pass out when I cough. Like, mm. I mean, that's a thing that happens to me. I laugh too hard and I pass out or I sneeze and then I black out. My, my wife is like, let me call an ambulance for you. And I'm like, no, I'm good. Like I just had a small, seizure or something i don't know it's fine and people shouldn't put their health at risk for that right so i mean like i said all that to say like i'm loving where i am i'm loving the journey that it took to get there but i am extremely concerned about the longevity of the quote-unquote hustle that i've had which Talk about phrases I don't want to accept. I don't want to be a part of hustle culture. I think that what I've done to myself has been extremely toxic. It's been extremely terrible for me. And I don't, 
I feel like I don't deserve it. My wife and my child don't deserve it. But if I want to get to where I want to be, that's the only way I know how to get there because nothing else has ever worked in the past. It's just, hey, put in, put in, you know, 22 hours of coding on the side, you know, outside of your day job, which again, right. makes no sense to me. I didn't even realize that was possible. Yeah, that, no, that makes no sense. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm surprised that's possible. Like, I, I also didn't know it's possible. Now I know it's possible talking to you about this. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's, uh, I don't know how that answer could be any different. Because, I mean, there's no, you know, there's ambiguity there, but it's ambiguity that's necessary because there's no, there's no answer to that question of what should you be doing different because there's no, way to roll back the clock you know there's no counterfactual that you can actually witness and see what would have happened if this and it could be that you needed to do a lot of these things to have the mindset of whatever the next thing you do is Mm -hmm. you know who knows but um when something's not working out i feel like figuring out what the what the thing that works is is the thing to do and it 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 would concern me as well kind of having Running your own business is really tough. I, I completely yeah. agree with you. And I feel like that's something that like, if you're out there listening to this, like thinking, should I run my own business? It's not that you shouldn't. You should experiment with it. It's a it's a thing that I feel like everyone should try to do. And then when you ultimately say, I don't want to do this, it's not working out, it's not your fault. In fact, you might even be a great person at running a business. It might have been that you didn't happen to have the serendipity of, the time, the place, and the thing all worked out and you happened to the right people and then it got to where it got to. And so you had to instead say, you know what, I'm going to whatever instead, get a job or do the thing I was doing before or something. And then if you circle back one day to whatever that thing is, there's no shame in that. And there's no, you know, there's, there's, it's, it's something where I feel like being able to put a dream aside to come back to later with the promise that after some point, after some goal that you get to a thing is okay. And I feel like I've done that with a very, very minor thing, which is front-end web development. I love front-end web development. I don't do front-end web development (laughs) because I teach Python. And that's a very minor thing to put on the shelf. It's nothing like your health. It's nothing like, you know, your livelihood, you know, lots of things that are much bigger. But putting anything on a shelf and saying, I'm not going to do that now. Maybe one day I'll circle back to it is a really, really hard thing to do. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think about that, like as a business, Pitt has done better and better each year. This year, maybe not because it's, it, I mean, again, Rona got a lot of people, so it's, it's been rough, but I mean, we went from, and not being a business, making like $150 a year, which basically just covered podcasting expenses, yep. to starting a business and making $800 in one year. And it was like, I had one client doing a very simple job and like not much to worry about. To last year having my first like $10,000 year. And it's like, again, doing all of this stuff outside of the day job. So it's like, hey, every single week I have to put a newsletter together and that means something. Every single week I have to run a transcription file for someone or I have to make a graphic. I have to do this little thing. And 
you know, the only way that you do that is by saying, I am going to do this. I, I am going to commit myself to doing this thing. And at the end of the day, like, I can't retire off of that. I mean, I can't make a living off of that at all. No. And there is a lot of question of like, well, do you keep doing it? Or like, like, what's the solution there? And I think that that's where as much as I do not, it's not that I don't like him as a person. I just think that the message that he gives is a little blind, but the idea of smart passive income of like your business doesn't have to necessarily, like if you just want to run a business, you can make a business that is not, very intensive on you. You can do a drop shipping business and like you will never, you'll never have to do, you know, day to day shipping and stuff for your business. Like that's just not a thing. Like you can, you literally just push a button and then all of a sudden your drop shipping business is up. But that's you wanting to run a business. That's not you wanting to solve a problem. I didn't want to run a business. I wanted to solve a problem and help people out. There was no business that I could find that solved all the problems that I wanted to solve. So it was like, well, I'm just going to go get a business license and make this thing a thing. And here we go. We're off to the races, I guess. But at the end of the day, if someone said, hey, I'm going to pay you a living wage and you just continue doing what you're doing, you just do it for more people. In a heartbeat, I would take that offer. I would do that. I mean, I've been I've been looking at like like teaching and consulting and writing code for people for a long time. I'm just not going to make it my business of having to find consulting clients and having to go on Fiverr. Like if I wanted to just write code every single day and get paid to do it, go to Fiverr, solve some code problems and like be doing that every day. That isn't scalable in a way that excites me. Helping podcasters and helping content creators make better lives for themselves. I've said this like so many times in in after shows, so people are going to get annoyed with it. But there are people who are in the development industry because they sat down and had a conversation with me on a podcast. There are people that have heard me talk on a po- on another podcast that I didn't even do that and gave them the encouragement to go and turn their hobby into a job. There are people who their first podcast was with me when I didn't know what I was doing and they didn't know what they were doing that are now podcasting for hundreds of thousands of people on a weekly basis that are doing bigger numbers and and getting paid a living wage to podcast. To me, the act of podcasting alone is worth it. If I have stories like that in my life, if I can have someone, you know, every once in a while, someone call me and go, Hey, I want you to know how important your show is to me because of this. It changed my life, not in some inspirational, motivating way, but it really gave me insight as to how how I could do a thing. And now that is my career. To me, I'd never want to stop doing the podcast if, as long as I have the opportunity for things like that to happen. And the downside to that is, by choosing to do that, I have to sacrifice somewhere. And because of that, it's like, how long will I be able to do that before eventually I have to stop? Right. Well, because you're, like you said, 
acting as a dev advocate for no particular company, not under anyone's brand, just for the sake of, you know, doing it yourself and kind of helping the community out, which is what dev advocates are hopefully supposed to do. People see them as, oh, that's a valuable member of our community, and they happen to be a dev advocate at this company and, you know, build some kind of trust there. But you're doing it without being paid. There's no one sponsoring you or backing you for any of that work. You're kind of just doing this out of the goodness of your own heart. And I mean, like you said, the fact that it makes you feel great knowing you've done the thing. But if you're kind of working yourself to the bone while, you know, having a day job taking up most of that time, that's not that thing, you're at some point giving possibly too much for, you know, you're stealing from your future self and you're stealing from some potential that's you doing something that's also impactful that you're getting compensated for so that you can then continue to do things that are impactful because, you know, we we don't have a basic minimum income in this country. We don't have a thing that allows you to just say, maybe I'll try this thing out. I'm going to quit my job and do this thing and see how it scales. It's a huge risk to suddenly say, I'm going to try this thing out full time because if it turns out it only scales up double or at one and a half times or whatever, then you're still not making nearly enough money to keep doing what you're doing. And you don't know whether it's going to scale well until you take that risk. And unless you've got some pool of money sitting around or some you know, institution or whatever backing you, then that's just not a risk that's worth taking a lot of the time, I think, which is it, as things are. Um, I don't. I don't even know how to conclude that thought because it's <laughs> it's not how it should be. I think something that you said there, and we can actually wrap on this, is like earlier you asked me what would I define myself as, and I, I think you just said it. It's like I am a developer advocate, but I'm not advocating for the business. I'm advocating for the developer. Yeah. Like, and I think it's funny that there is no job title for that there is no phrase for that like i'm not a counselor i'm not like a mentor like i am the person that's here to amplify the voices of other developers and help put them in positions for success i mean i guess in some ways you could call me like a i don't know like the donald glover of development or something (laughs) (laughs) yep that's, we're just going to tag that on everything. <laughs> yeah, um, just... <laughs> I kind of feel like some dev advocates may say that's actually what they do. But this is, it's a funny thing that I, I know a lot of dev advocates from conferences because if you go to enough conferences, they're at all the conferences. So you end up meeting them. You know, Eventually, you'll run into the same person a couple of times and you're like, what brings you to the same conferences as me? This is a little odd. They're like, oh, I'm at all of them. That's what I get paid to do is come yeah. here. And some of them do seem to, to see themselves as advocating for the people who use the services of the company within the company and the other way around. But I, you're right. It's not, that's kind of a misleading title because that's not always the case. And it often is the opposite. I, I feel like that should be your Twitter bio. You, Jay Miller, I advocate for the developer. <laughs> yeah. The developer advocate that advocates for the developer. I mean, and, and yeah. there's a good example of that. Like I've had people advocate for me. Like I've had people, the job interviews that I'm in now are only there because I've had people that are like, Hey, Jay's available, hire him. Like, 
the, he, he is the candidate that you're looking for because he can do this job for you. You should hire him. And I wish that I was in a position to where I could do that. And I'm not. And I, I guess the only way that I can do that is <clears throat> by being in the industry and playing the game. So it's like, yeah, I could, you know, apply to, to, you know, be a, you know, a part of PSF and I could contribute to the PSF and, and do all of those things. But by doing that, you're now taking time away from what you're actually trying to accomplish. It's like, I could have conversations with developers and then connect them with the other people that I've already met and see if there's ways that they can help pe- you know, help that person out, which is really, in a way, what I do. That's a lot of what I'm doing on a regular day-to-day. I'm just doing that for free. And to me, I feel like that should be what a developer advocate is, is it's a person that looks at what another developer is doing and says, let me find the best resources and people to connect you with, to get the best possible outcome. But what companies have done now have said, don't worry about that. We are the best product and resource. We need you to explain to the developers why that's the case. And Mm. I know that every company that you talk to will say, no, that's not what we do. Like, but I mean, they have to, that's, that's a business goal. I just wish that there was truly like a, I connect developers with other developers and resources. If they say they want to learn Gatsby, I find the people who are doing the best Gatsby stuff and try to set up an introduction. If, if they say, I want to become a, a senior engineer, I connect them with other senior engineers and ask all the questions. Or I just ask the questions out of curiosity so that when they say, I want to be a senior engineer, I can go, hey, I've had several conversations with senior engineers. Here are some of the tools and tips that I've learned over time to to help. And and. I've actually thought about a, a project called the Developer Advocate, like that would be like a podcast kind of branding series kind of thing that would do that, where I'm literally just taking questions that people would ask and finding the solutions for them and finding the resources for them and kind of making it like a, a vlogging journey type thing. But again, it's like to do that, I have to then commit to a ton of work that at the end of the day, I'm probably not going to be compensated for. (laughs) Right. Well, or find a way to use whatever network you've, you've got around that to say, you know, these questions that aren't in this pool of stuff that I'm willing to put in the work to do and that I, I don't know people to, to quickly answer. I have to, you know, put these on the back burner. Can't do that now. But this one, oh, I happen to already answer that because you're asking, you know, how do I get into learning Python for something? Oh, that was in this episode or this person knows. And outsourcing, sending emails to like me and other people to do the work for you and somehow crediting. I mean, there's, you're still doing, there's, you're doing the work there of then fitting the pieces together, which is still work. It's still something that you're uncompensated for, but there might be some way to, to, you know, not have to do it all yourself because it's so hard to be, this is something I'm learning more and more that, you know, in my company, I'm often the one doing the the sales call, the booking of my travel, 
the letting, sending, here's the things that need the documents. When I come onto your office, I expect to see these things in the room because I need these to, you know, I need a working internet connection, this kind of stuff. The sending of the invoice, all the things happen from me. And that's completely unnecessary if I have the resources to pay someone else to do it or to convince someone else to do it without pay, which would not be honest if I was running an actual business, which I am, but a volunteer thing to convince another volunteer to help you do it somehow because for whatever reason, they also want to be involved. That's like, it's so hard even after years of being part of a community to remember that I'm not the only one, that I really should be trying to use the other resources as much as possible, the other people I have to be helping lift up the thing that I happen to be working on when they have a moment to kind of help out there. Um, Circling back to something you said that was, it made me realize that, you know, if you're running your own thing, as I feel like a lot of people are who are probably like following you because, you know, you might be trying to be productive in your, your actual nine to five job. And that's a, a, a big deal. I don't know how your audience is, but if you're trying to be productive on the side, you're doing your own thing. You're trying to see, can I make this thing happen? I, I do think it's really rare that you keep on running for so long that you end up finding some institution or group of people or market that wants the thing that you happen to be doing that moment and then it clicks and you now get paid to do the same thing. You get swooped up by that company and hired to advocate for the developers. You're already advocating for them, that type of thing. And I feel like there's not... um, There's not a problem. Well, there's a a very big problem with the fact that this is necessary, but the usual route for most people in that situation is, okay, I'm going to stop this for now. I'm putting it on pause. I'm going to go get a regular job doing a thing, whether it's marketing or I'm a junior developer because they won't believe me that I'm actually senior level because I just haven't written whatever that they want me to have written. And then working up from there and then circling back, but that's years later. And I don't think this system is fair or, or just or right. And I don't know how to make that better. But I feel like that's the thing that it's really hard for me to avoid wanting to say to someone who walks into, say, the Python study group, and we both used to go there, going, I want to make this thing. It's going to be great and something's going to happen and people are going to you know, buy it or invest in it or something. Because most of the time, they're going to fail at that particular goal. It doesn't mean they're going to fail in life. They're not failing. But the thing you're working on today, you're going to fail at. There's going to be a whole bunch of failures. And then like some kind of successes that you're like, you know, I didn't really want to do this thing, but it ended up being the thing that was successful. So I'm doing it anyway. And then maybe you get a success that also happens to be the thing you wanted to do. And I feel really lucky that I've had a couple of those where I've, I've gotten paid for the thing I actually wanted to do because there was a while where I was getting paid for things I didn't really want to do. And I'd have to try to squeeze in like, oh, convince them you actually want this thing as well that you didn't ask me to do. And, you know, not getting paid at all, you're even in like a, a lower position of that leverage of can I, can I convince someone to do the thing while getting paid for it? Because now you also have to convince them to pay you. So I, I don't want to discourage anyone from going out on their own and doing their own thing. I just there's the the warning that it really should be a side thing. You know, you're doing the right thing here by doing it on the side because if you took the leap to doing it, like quitting your day job, I feel like it would be just an order of magnitude even more scary. Yeah, and and I think that the barrier 
to success, not even the barrier to like failure is high, but like the barrier to, to success is so high at that point where, you know, what are your metrics for success? The metric for success for me in transcriptor is if I can make a transcription happen. Like, was it easier than doing it the Amazon way? Was it easier doing the GCS way? If the answer is yes, then that's a success. Right. <clears throat> when it's the thing that is paying your bills, the barrier of success, whether or not it, it operates as intended is no longer the problem. It is, are you making money off of it? Like, that's the thing that I, I think that is so funny is that if you look at what happened with Twitter you know, and people are going to hear this a few months down the road. So if you're if you're looking at the situation where Twitter had they literally had to prevent the tweeting of all of their um, identified or verified users, they had to do that not because there was a flaw in the system. They didn't do that because of a failure. They did it because someone found a way to spot an issue in spite of their successes like they still make millions of dollars every year probably billions of dollars every year off of twitter so if you look at what was a success and what was a failure twitter you could say would be a success but the fact that someone accessed accounts to the point that it could have literally if they had they tried started a global crisis to me in my mind, that is a massive failure. It's a massive failure that they weren't prepared for. It's a massive failure that they didn't, they, there was no KPI, you know, that was like, hey, if we don't start World War Three, that's, you know, a success in our book. Like, I'm sure they just want to be like, hey, if we build a platform where people can talk to each other, then that's a massive success. Yeah. The more that we put, the more importance we put on a thing, the more that the level of success and failure is no longer about what our initial goal was. Like you said, you had a, you built a site that helps people search for, you know, copyright free music. If someone found a copyright free song on your site, to me, that's a success. But, you know, if at the end of the day, you're making all of your money off of it, and like, you have to shut it down because you can't afford the hosting fees because of the spike in traffic that you get. And it's not, monetized properly or whatever, you still successfully built that thing, but you can't say it was successful. Right. So, so I feel like in some ways it's actually better to not have a thing be what you make your living off of. But I, I think in that same mindset, you have to also make sure that you're okay with whatever level you're at. And if that's the case, you, I mean, that's, that's where I'm hung up right now. And I, and this has to be the last question because my daughter's like throwing a fit and I need to go make sure she's okay. Like she sounds okay. If she stops crying, then I have a problem. <laughs> but like, <laughs> but like, um, for me, the problem has been more and more now that there are people that I can't reach and people that I can't help because of the limitations in doing this on the side and the solutions that I have in mind are I can get a new job that allows a little bit more freedom, a little bit more time to focus on certain areas where I can help more people. 
you know, again, if I'm writing code during the day, I don't have to spend 22 hours in the off time, you know, writing code. So that frees up some time. Or I find a way to make what I'm doing successful enough that I can help people and it also pays my bills, which then creates a whole nother level of measuring success. But to me, it's a risk that I feel like is worth taking. Well, there's a third option, which is you try to do the first thing to help you get the second thing. There's probably even more options, but it's, yeah. it's, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to choose that. Um, we could talk about stuff all day, but we both have to go. Uh, yep. This was awesome being part of this, Jay. I don't, I don't even know what to – I mean, this, this is a podcast that you're running here, but I feel like this particular conversation was more than just a podcast conversation. Yeah. Yeah, hold on. Let me stop the recordings here. Boom and...